Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. How old is rock and roll now? If we use, let's say, 1955 as some kind of arbitrary ground zero, rock is now eligible for all kinds of seniors discounts. It's a long time to be around, and the older rock gets, the more difficult it becomes to stick out, to find distinctive approaches, and to be unique in an ocean of other acts and sounds. How many bands of, uh, let's say, the last 20 years can you name that has a sound so distinctive that you know exactly who they are within just the first couple of seconds? I can name one, Queens of the Stone Age. There's something about what they do that sonically sets them apart from just about everybody else. But it's more than just guitar sounds and arrangements and lyrics. The elements required to create this uniqueness are complex and varied, and I think worthy of study. In fact, you can't separate the sounds of Queens of the Stone Age from their history, which is also very, very complex. Let's see if we can untangle everything. These are some secrets of Queens of the Stone Age, Part 1. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Josh Ami and Queens of the Stone Age with The Way You Used to Do, a single from their 2017 album, Villains. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and on this episode... We're going to dig into Queens of the Stone Age to see what makes them tick. Fascinating bunch. This is stuff that even big fans might not know about. So we'll call this Secrets of Queens. The only place to start with this band is at the beginning, which is in the high desert east of Palm Springs, California. Josh Homme, who is the only continuous member of Queens of the Stone Age, was a kid from a well-to-do family. Dad was a contractor who built houses in the Coachella Valley. Josh first wanted to play drums, but mom and dad insisted that he learn a real instrument. Okay, as a drummer myself, I'll try not to take that as an insult. So that's how Josh ended up with his first guitar at age 10. It was a $50 acoustic. There were music lessons, and the first thing Josh learned how to play were polkas. That lasted about two weeks before he discovered hardcore punk. And two bands were particularly important, GBH and Discharge. Both bands had guitarists that played with a straight up and down strumming style. So you combine that with the strumming required to play polkas, 
and you suddenly begin to understand why Josh plays guitar the way he does and why Queens of the Stone Age sounds just a little bit different. Josh's first band was called Cats and Jammer, and they tried really, really hard to be a proper hardcore punk band, but they were actually quite terrible. Then again, everybody was only in grade eight or nine, so that was pretty par for the course. But they kept at it, and Josh remembers practicing in garages that were later converted into meth labs at night. The big thing to do back then was go to what was known as a generator party. Kids would load up some gear, drive out into the desert at night, somewhere in the middle of nowhere, and then party with a bunch of bands powered by a generator or two. A favorite spot was an old nudist colony that had been abandoned. Most generator parties featured three or four bands, a couple of kegs of beer, a bonfire, and a bunch of kids getting drunk, stoned, naked, and grooving to the music, which consisted largely of long, drawn-out psyche jams. Think uh, Black Sabbath meets Black Flag. Now, this sounds great, but if you were in one of the bands, you had better be good, because otherwise the crowd would turn on you really, really fast. After a few months of building their chops at these parties, Cats and Jammer changed their name to Sons of Caius. Now, that makes no sense unless you play Dungeons and Dragons. The game features an evil high priest called Caius, and he had some hideous offspring, hence Sons of Caius. This group sounded different. The guitars were tuned down as low as possible, right to the point where the strings were so floppy that they couldn't be played. The sounds that came out seemed to appeal to the stoners in the crowd, so they went with that. Josh enhanced that sound, by running his guitar through both guitar and bass amps and cabinets. So the low end to what they were doing became very, very important. In 1987, Sons of Caius, Josh, his buddy Nick Oliveri, drummer Brent Bjork, and singer John Garcia, recorded a demo. And the result was a self-titled vinyl-only release. Only five copies were pressed up. It was a big slab of sludge rock. Josh Homme's pre-Queens of the Stone Age band Sons of Caius with Deadly Kiss. That dates back to 1987 and was re-released in 1990 after they got a deal with an indie label called Dolly. That's when they also shortened their name to just Caius because the record label insisted. After the re-release of those early songs, Caius recorded a record called Wretch, which featured re-recordings of early songs and a few new tunes. Here's a sample of how they sounded back then. This is called The Law. Caius with The Law from their 1991 debut. There would be a total of four Caius albums, all of which featured Josh Homme's bass-heavy guitar sound, which he seemed to get by tuning things down to C and then using that guitar and bass amp combination. And by the way, do not ask Josh about how he gets his guitar sound. He guards it very, very carefully. Nothing Caius did really made it to the radio, largely because that wasn't the band's goal. In fact, they worked hard at writing songs that would make radio cringe, except, interestingly, a station in Minneapolis who became a big supporter. If something sounded too much, like a catchy chorus, they'd actually cut that from the song. Caius instead worked on creating a cult following, which they did, and if an album sold 40,000 copies, that was fine. That was a big victory for them. 
their career highlight was opening for Metallica in Australia. And the low light was probably all the lineup changes. Nick Oliveri left and came back. The band went through two drummers and two bass players. And there were other problems. Their record label went under and they got absorbed into Elektra, part of the major label Warner Empire. That didn't sit well with them. And, oh, they also fired their manager. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, in October of 1995, Caius broke up. At the time, the group consisted of Josh, Scott Reeder on bass, drummer Fredo Hernandez, and singer John Garcia. The breakup seemed to be fairly friendly. Everybody just seemed to be bored. It was time. Josh, for example, was just 17 when the first Caius record came out. And by the time of the breakup, he was 21. He wanted to try something else. Same thing with Nick Oliveri. He went off to play in a few different bands. Scott Reeder and Fredo Hernandez did the same thing. But John Garcia, the singer, pulled a big left turn. He became a veterinary surgeon. Looking back on the breakup, it might have been Iggy Pop's fault. It was around this time that Josh discovered albums like Lust for Life and The Idiot. That was the kind of music he wanted to make now, not whatever Caius was doing. Before we move on, let's hear something from that final Caius album. It was called And the Circus Leaves Town. This is One Inch Men. Some of the last music from Josh Homme's pre-Queens of the Stone Age band, Caius. That's One Inch Men from 1996 and the Circus Leaves Town album. Caius turned out to be pretty influential during their time. They were ground zero of a new form of fuzzy guitar music. Some called it desert rock. You can see why. And others used the term dirt rock. But the one that really stuck was stoner rock. Josh grew to hate that term. But the fact remains that Caius was part of all that. So, what came next? Queens of the Stone Age, right? Actually, no. There were a few stops along the way. That's next. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is part one of a deep history of Queens of the Stone Age, and we're looking at some secrets from the band's past. The pre-Queens band Caius broke up in October 1995. The next thing Josh Homme did was create a project called Gamma Ray, which released a 7-inch single with three songs. Only 2,000 were pressed. But I have a sample. This is called Born to Hula. Josh Homme working under the name Gamma Ray from early 1996. It's not bad, but uh, Josh didn't stick around. He needed a change of scenery from the desert, so he moved to Seattle, a very wet place, to do nothing. The idea was to take a break from music and go back to school, and he did that for 1996 and 1997. He studied business at the University of Washington. But then he met Mark Lanigan, the singer for The Screaming Trees, a terribly underrated Seattle band. Mark was a fan of Caius and needed someone to tour with the trees 
and asked Josh if he would like to be his guitarist. So he did that for two years. If you were at Lollapalooza in 1996 and saw the tree set, that six foot five red haired rhythm guitarist was Josh Homme. That whole experience got Josh thinking about starting up another band of his own. But where to start? The first post-Screaming Trees thing Josh did was assemble a bunch of friends in a recording studio called Rancho de la Luna in Joshua Tree, California. So back to the desert, maybe to rekindle whatever brought Josh to music in the first place. The ultimate result has been an ongoing series of recordings called The Desert Sessions that continues even today. The first volume was recorded in the summer of 1997, just Josh and some friends jamming in the desert. Its official title is Instrumental Driving Music for Felons. Here's a sample. This is Girl Tomboy. That's Josh Homme leading the first volume of his Desert Sessions, that ever-changing collective of musical friends that love to hang out and create. But the Desert Sessions was meant as a jam, not a permanent thing. It was an inspiration, a lot of fun, but not really a long-term prospect. So what else could Josh do? After all, he had done the Gamma Ray thing before moving to Seattle, so maybe he could go back to that. And he kind of did, but not really. I'll explain in a sec. After his stints with Caius, working with Screaming Trees, and conducting the first Desert Sessions recordings, Josh Homme was looking for a new long-term project that he could direct himself in a more conventional manner. His first thought was to resurrect Gamma Ray, but there was a problem. A German power metal band had dibs on that name and started making noises about legal action, so Josh had to come up with something else. Okay, rewind to the Caius days. They recorded with a producer named Chris Goss, who was also a member of a band called Masters of Reality. Whenever he was in the studio with the band, he would yell at Caius, calling them Queens of the Stone Age, as in, you guys all sound like queens of the Stone Age. Nobody was really sure what that meant, but it did sound kind of cool. And Josh thought that was actually kind of funny. And he also thought it would be funny to see that name up in a marquee or on a concert ticket. So the new band became... Queens of the Stone Age. Okay. Josh wanted a clean slate, so no more long stoner rock jams. Songs had to be shorter, sharper, tighter, cleaner, and with more focus. At first, Josh was going to be sort of a musical director in the project, bringing in some of his Seattle friends. Mark Lanigan was supposed to be the only other permanent person. He was offered the lead singer spot, but he was way too busy, so he politely begged off. So it was up to Josh to take over. The first official Queen's gig was on November 20th, 1997, at a Mexican restaurant in Palm Desert, California, in front of about 25 people. By the end of the year, there was a split EP featuring three tracks from Caius and three more from this new band. It's instructive to listen to one of those Queen's tracks because we can hear the evolution in Josh's approach to music. This is called If Only Everything. That's pretty much the earliest proper Queens of the Stone Age that we can find, from December 1997 and an EP split between Queens and Caius that's If Only Everything. Eleven months later, October 1998, the debut Queens album was released. It was a self-titled indie affair, and from that is this, Regular John. Eight, six, two, seven, eight, two, 
Early Queens of the Stone Age, regular John from the 1998 self-titled debut record. Josh played pretty much all the instruments with the exception of drums, which was handled by Fredo Hernandez from Caius. A couple of friends filled in a few other parts, but it was really the Josh show. And it turned out well enough that Josh figured that he'd struck upon something pretty cool. But if this was going to be a viable project, he really needed to pull together a band. Who could he call? Well, what about Nick Oliveri? If you go right to the end of that debut Queen's album, you'll find a song called I Was a Teenage Hand Model. And if you scrub to the end of the song, you'll hear this phone message. Hey, Josh, this is Nick Oliveri. Uh, probably the last time. Uh, sounds good to me. Okay, that's that's a little hard to make out, but that's Nick agreeing to be in Josh's new band. So there's some pretty deep background on Queens of the Stone Age, but there's still so much more to go. More than 20 years of history, actually. On part two, we'll go through the band's rise, complete with the weird saga of Nick and his relationship with the group. There's Dave Grohl's relationship with Queens. Plus, there are all the things that Josh has done outside the band. Oh, and then there was that time Josh nearly died. Lots to cover. Podcasts of this episode and hundreds of others are available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the other podcast platforms. You are invited to binge to your heart's content. We can connect on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I have my website, which is a ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It's updated every day. And you probably should subscribe to my daily newsletter. It's free, and you can do that at the website. And if you have any input at all about this program, or if you have any questions, just shoot an email to alan at alancross.ca, and I'll get right back to you. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. We'll talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. (laughs) 